First Chronicles chapter 14. Now, the parallel passages of First Chronicles are um, in Second Samuel. Uh, pretty much the same exact stories. Sometimes they have a little bit of information here, a little less there, and so on and so forth. Uh, and we see the parallel passages of First Chronicles in somewhere around Second Samuel six or seven, something like that. Um, last week, when we looked at the bringing in, the bringing of the Ark of the Covenant and putting it on a cart and Uzzah dying and all that sort of stuff, in our First Chronicles passage, that story is given to us, and then we come to the passage we're going to look at today. It's chapter 13 followed by chapter 14. Over in uh, 2 Samuel, the order is reversed. And so there, David is going off into the battles, and the battles are over or whatever, and uh, you have the story of him bringing forth the ark. It's not, it's not that it's a contradiction, it's just the way that the order was placed. At, at no point does it say, uh, and then when the battle was done, David went out and brought in the ark. It doesn't say anything like that necessarily. It's just the way that the writer chose to group the particular stories. Now remember, hundreds of things occurred in the life of David and in the, the lives of the people of Israel. These were the select stories that were, were chosen to, to, to convey the message that God was trying uh, to, to convey. So in our passage today, we are coming right after the ark. And again, I don't know what came first. Was it the, uh, the battles or was it the ark trying to be brought up? But regardless of that, uh, today's passage begins in verse 1. It says, Now Hiram, the king of Tyre, he sent messengers to David in cedar trees, also masons and carpenters, to build a house for him. And David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, and that his kingdom was highly exalted for the sake of his people, Israel. And David took more wives in Jerusalem, and David fathered more sons and daughters. These are the names of the children born to him in Jerusalem. And they are Shammua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Ippolet, Noga, Nephi, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphalet. Now, the passage begins and speaks about a fellow by the name of Hiram. Now, Hiram was the king of this city that was known as Tyre. Tyre is located outside of the borders of Israel. It's uh, just north of Israel on the Mediterranean Sea. Today it's sort of this archaeological wonder of a city. Tyre had a mainland. We have a picture. Yep. Tyre had sort of a mainland city. And then Hiram, this mighty king, perhaps the greatest of the kings of this uh, nation state, if you will, um, Tyre, he decided he was going to build a city for himself, an island city for himself. And so he had his men come and they built, they, much like Manhattan, they came and they took all of the rocks and all of the garbage, whatever it may be, and they built for themselves a city off of the coast of the mainland there uh, of today what would be Lebanon. And it became one of these great cities of the world in which Hiram uh, reigned from or ruled from. It was a city that was built on, you've heard of the coveted, the cedars of Lebanon, you've heard of that? It was a city that was built with those cedars that were just kind of indigenous to that particular area there. And the fact that, Dave, that Hiram would send to David these free gifts, so to speak, is an indication that uh, David is building or growing in his influence around the world. He's growing in his importance, particularly in that particular region. It also demonstrates for us that David wasn't just a man of war, but he was, if you will, he was a man that was able to develop these political alliances with the neighboring nations. And so one of the examples of that, fresh off of these string of victories that David has, his 
is a key city now. His capital city is firmly established. His kingdom is not endowed any longer. He is the king of all of Israel. And now one of the neighboring nations, one of the powerful neighboring nations, this nation of Tyre, they come and they say, you know what, we want to make an alliance with you. We don't want to fight with you. We want to be a friend. Hiram, this fellow, he was a contemporary of both David, uh, and he was before David, but he was a contemporary, I guess, of Saul, of David, and also of David's son, Solomon, who would go on to become a king. And he establishes this alliance by sending gifts. And as you see in verse 3, we see that David also establishes alliances by the practice of taking wives of, uh, unto himself, or these sort of political marriages here. So verse 3 says, And David took more wives in Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem is when he became the king of all of Israel. And so David begins to gather uh, not just one, not just two, but three, four, five, six wives uh, in this particular process, and then goes on and fathers uh, more sons and daughters, it says there. Now you look at this, and unfortunately this decision to take more wives while he was in Jerusalem, it was in direct opposition to what the scripture taught, and yet it was what David did anyway. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 17, it says, Now when you come into the land that I am giving you, I will set a king over you, and he shall not acquire many wives unto himself. The scripture was very clear that David shouldn't be doing this, but David did it anyway. And I think part of the reason why David did it anyway is because this is the way you did things in our day. You want to have peace with the neighboring nations around you, well then you have to marry the daughters of the kings or the princesses or whatever it may be. That's just the way things are done in our time and in our day. And you know, I think you and I, we, we could look at this and say, David, you're, you're dumb. You're an idiot. What are you doing marrying all these people? But how many times have we been a people that rationalize things away because we say to ourselves, well, that's just the way things are done these days. Whether it be we're cheating at work, or whether it be the way that we're in a relationship and uh, where the relationship itself goes, um, physically, whatever it may be. But we rationalize to ourselves and we convince ourselves that, yes, I understand the scripture may say this, but that's the way things are done these days. And so David here, he takes on these wives, he, he adopts this cultural norm of the neighboring nations, and it's going to get him into trouble. Now, the passage makes no comment about David's decision. And you shouldn't look at that and necessarily say, well, the silence means that God uh, approved of it, or that the behavior was somehow condoned or encouraged or accepted by God. It, it, you know, we say the phrase, it is what it is. It, it's just kind of the facts are presented to us. The information is there. And we don't necessarily have a comment as to whether this is right or wrong. But I appreciate what one Bible commentator said. He said this, he said that David took more wives was a historical fact, but a moral failure, directly contrary to the law. And this sin led to a whole series of disasters later on in David's life. And so once again, when we saw that David brought up the ark, the scripture was clear as to how the ark was to be transported. But David either didn't know or he ignored those instructions. The scripture was very clear about the decision to take more wives unto himself. But either David didn't know, or he didn't take into account those particular uh, instructions. And it got him into trouble. In Psalm 119, verse 11, it says, I've hidden your word in my heart, that I might not sin against you. You see, the word of God has been given to us as our guide. 
as a direction for us. It's life to us. But notice what it says in just two verses before that, 119.9, it says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By taking heed, according to your word. Mere knowledge of the word is not going to keep your way pure. But it's obeying it, and it's taking heed according to it. And that is something that David needed to do. Now, one of the things that I would draw to your attention also is, it's important for us to notice that this moral failure, it comes during a period of David's life where he is experiencing great success. Notice what it says in verse 2. It says, Now David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, and that his kingdom was highly exalted for the sake of his people, Israel. David was here in a place of his life that we would just we would classify as a period of great success. He was now the king of all of Israel. He was having success over the neighboring nations. He was building political alliances with others. He was being used by God uh, to make Jerusalem the center and, and God himself to be the center of the people's worship. And yet it was during this period of success that the seeds of future trouble were being, uh, being sown. Now, if you look through the scriptures at the life of David, and it's a great study, you know, maybe kind of skim through 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, skim through um, 2 Samuel and a little bit of 1 Samuel, and just sort of look at the life of David. One of the things that you will notice as you're doing that is that David seemed to handle adversity far better than he did prosperity. It was during the trials of David's life where he consistently was placing his life into the hands of God. And sadly, it's during the periods of prosperity and success where we begin to see in David a consistent disregard for God's ways, or at the very least, a failure to seek God's ways. And I would suggest to you as brothers and sisters in Christ, as followers of Christ, it's, important, it's an important lesson for us to observe of David, that we need to be a people that seek the Lord's, the Lord, I should say, both in times of plenty as both in times, in the wanton times, when we're hurting, both in the prosperity as well as in the adversity. We need the purpose to seek the Lord with an awareness. This is what I prayed earlier. We need to purpose to seek the Lord with an awareness of our desperation, not only when the circumstances dictate it. You know, there are times you know that you are desperate, right? Like I do. God, I need your help. Your mom is sick. God, I need your help. The doctor said maybe this. God, I need your help. I was called into the office at work, and such and such might come down. God, I need, we know that there are times when we are desperate. But it's in those times when things are going great that we need to realize, Lord, I am still desperately in need of you. Even though all my bills are paid, even though things are going fine at work, even though everybody's healthy, even though all the relationships are good. I like what David Busick said on this matter. He said, it's often true that the seeds to our future trouble are sown in times of great success and prosperity. It's often true that the seeds of our future trouble are sown in times of great success and prosperity. Now, before leaving verse 2, I want to draw your attention to one more important point, and that's David's understanding of his leadership and the success that he was enjoying. Notice verse 2 again. It said, Now David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, and that his kingdom was highly exalted for the sake of the people of Israel. Two things that I noticed there. Number one, David knew that God had established him. 
And I think that's important. Again and again, we have, we have read how David left leaving things in the hands of God when he was running from Saul. He just said, well, I'm going to just trust God. I'm going to trust the Lord and all this. And he kept leaving it in God's hand. Now that all that has happened and David is now the king and everything is going great, it's important that he remember that truth. You see, because sometimes when we get out of the adversity and things are going great, we sort of forget. Man, I remember how desperate I was for the Lord. I remember how I asked him for his help. I remember during those difficult times where I said, God, you're so good, you're so great, thank you for helping me. But now that I'm king, now that everything is going smoothly, it's easy to forget that it was our desperation that uh, caused us to cry out. And not only do we remember one time, but I've learned an important truth in my life that I need to keep reminding myself that it is God that has established me in whatever place that God has established me. The second thing that I notice is that David had an understanding for why God established him as king. Notice again verse 2, it says, for the sake of his people Israel. David knew that God didn't make him king so that he could go down in history. I'm going to be famous someday. That's why God made me king, so everyone would know my name. David understood that God didn't coronate him so that he could enjoy all sorts of pleasures of life and all this sort of stuff. But what David came to realize is that God wanted to bless the people of Israel. And David was going to be used as a servant to accomplish that reality. David became king. God established David as king so that the people could be blessed. And I encourage you, if you are a leader of any sorts, maybe you're a manager at work, maybe you're a teacher, like Barb, you can tell you're a teacher, Barb. You held your little bulletin up for us. Very impressive. Right? Maybe you're a teacher somewhere and you're a leader over those people. Maybe you're a mom or a dad. Maybe you're an older brother or a sister. And circumstances of life have thrust you into a position where you are a leader then I would encourage you to remember the lessons here that David gives for us. If he's established you maybe to lead a ministry here at Calvary, or in our community, like University Christian Fellowship, and Melissa Dombrowski, well, that be reminded of this truth, that God is the one that has established you in that position, and he has placed you in that position so that you can be a blessing to those that you are ministering to. Remember, the word minister means to serve. Nothing to do with, I finally arrived, now all these people will serve me. That's not what it means to be a follower and a servant of Christ, according to the scriptures. It's the idea that they would be blessed. We serve them with humility and for their benefit. Now, as we move on to verse 8, once again, we're going to see that the Philistine people come up against the nation of Israel. Now, you remember the Philistine people were the perennial enemies of the nation of Israel. They were Saul's enemies. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's in a battle against them that Saul uh, would die. We read that story not too many weeks ago. Uh, and remember, the Philistine people, they were a loose organization, if you will, of nations. We might use the term city-states. Sort of independent, but somehow connected as well. And there was uh, roughly about five of those city-states um, that came together as the enemies of the nation of Israel. Now remember also that when David was running for his life, David was uh, an ally to these Philistine people. He went down and they thought he was working for them. He wasn't, uh, but he was safe in their care. And he was their friend, you might say. Uh, but now that David is sort of the king uh, over Israel, and he's being increasingly given these victories over the Philistines, first in the city of Jehu, as you may recall. Then that whole story we learned last week where he used that magic box thing, the Ark of the Covenant, and he calls somehow David in their mind, caused hemorrhoids to come upon the people. And I know some of you are thinking, enough, 
with the hemorrhoids. <laughs> bring it up every week. It's a big station of mine. <laughs> so things have changed now. David is no longer our ally. He's our enemy. And the reports begin going out that David is making all sorts of alliances with neighboring nations. And so the Philistines say, you know what, this needs to stop. Look at verse 8. It says, now when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over all of Israel, the Philistines went up to search for David. Now if you keep reading the passage, it says, uh, now the Philistines had come and they made a raid in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of God, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to him, Go up, I will give them into your hand. And he went up to baal Perizim, and David struck them down there. And David said, God has broken through my enemies by my hand, like a bursting flood. Therefore the name of that place is called baal Perizim. And they left their gods there, and God gave command, and they were burned. Or David gave command, excuse me, and they were burned. So David's fame is beginning to spread. The Philistine people of the nations. Now remember, the nations are Gath, Ekron, Ashdod, Ashkelon, and Gaza. I think we have a map of that. We haven't showed it yet. There it is. You see, you see those blue dots off there, one to the side. Uh, there's five of them. There, that's the nations that I just listed for you: um, Gath, Ashdod, Ekron, uh, and the other two. Um, so you don't need to know. Uh, notice how they are on sort of the, the coast. Now, uh, straight down in the middle there, you see that's the Valley of Rephaim, and, and right there is basically where Jerusalem is. The Valley of Rephaim is about two miles away from Jerusalem. Uh, these Philistine cities that are off on the coast there, they're about 50 miles, 40 to 50 miles away from Jerusalem. And these nations, at, at one, or as one, they begin to push their way to the east. It's interesting, all the neighboring nations today of Israel, they talk about driving Israel into the sea, and they're going to wipe them off the face of the map. Good luck with that. Uh, but that's their goal nonetheless. Well, these guys are going in opposite direction, and they're, they're making their push. They're going to come, and they're going to attack. And you can imagine. And it says David hears that they're coming up against him, and he goes out to meet them. So David and his men are rising, riding as fast as they can. His armies are riding as fast as they can. And you get an indication of how close they made it to Jerusalem, that David only gets about two miles outside of the city of Jerusalem to the valley of Rephaim. And they've already gone 45, 46, 47 miles. And they're right on the doorstep, so to speak, of Jerusalem, and they're going to go out to battle. So now David and his men are ready. Now, we look at this and we say, man, a battle. I thought things were going pretty good, David. You know, God established him. God was blessing him. God was using him to be a blessing in the lives of other people. And now we have these attacks, this stinks. It's important for us to remember as believers that it's, it's, and it's that the enemy will come against us even when we are in the place of victory, and especially when we are in the place of victory. Now, I've heard a lot of Christians that will say something to the effect like this, if I was really right with God, then these attacks wouldn't be coming against me. I shouldn't have to deal with these things. You know, these frustrations in my life, my sin nature, these attacks, you know, being drawn away toward lust or uh, whatever it may be. I should be past these things. I should be a mature Christian. Well, the reality is the more effective you are being for the kingdom, the more important to the enemy that you be brought down and that you be stopped. Something's got to stop you and your effectiveness. That's how the enemy will look at it. And so the attacks from the outside, they will come. And the believer that is seeking to walk with the Lord in victory, don't be surprised when they do. 
I think of the Apostle Peter. Now, Peter knew what it was to be walking in victory and at the same time to be susceptible to attack. Peter wrote in 1 Peter, he said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial which comes your way to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It is not unusual that these trials come our way as followers of Christ. I think the best example of a person in victory, or one of the best examples of a person that is in victory and yet the attack comes against him nonetheless, is when Jesus and the disciples are gathered, Peter's there, and Jesus poses a question. He says, who do people say that I am? He had been talking to the multitudes, and now he's dealing just with the 12 or so. And he looks at them, and it's a quiet time, maybe over dinner or something like that, and he says, hey, let me ask you guys a question. What are people saying about me? Who do they say that I am? And they start throwing out answers. Some say you're the prophet. Some say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're this. Others say you're that. And Jesus says, well, who do you say? And Peter, essentially, he responds this way. He says, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. I'm all in with you. And, and, and Jesus' response, and, and I don't have it literally for you, but he basically says, Peter, that is so cool. What a great answer. And he says, and let me tell you something, Peter. Flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my Father in heaven gave that to you. How awesome that you're in tune with what God is doing. And Peter's like, thank you. you know, no problem. You know, and the other guy's like, yeah. I don't know what they're like, but Peter is right where God is leading and God is moving in his heart and he gives this answer and Jesus said, you couldn't be more right about that particular answer. He's in a place of victory and that's why it is so ironic in Matthew chapter 16 that the next verse introduces us to this instance where Peter is found uh, rebuking Jesus because Jesus said he's going to go to the cross and he's going to die. Peter pulls him aside because remember, Peter has access to God. You know, he, he's God's talking to him. He's telling him things, and so he knows. So he's got to pull Jesus aside and maybe just correct him a little bit. Because, you know, Jesus, you know, you're all message here. And so he pulls him aside, and he says, look, man, you're scaring everybody. Don't talk like death and all this sort of stuff. People don't want to hear that. People aren't going to follow you. And Jesus rebukes him. And what does he say, remember? He says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So he goes from, you are so right, God totally talks to you, and you hear him, and you can respond to, get behind me, Satan. You see what I'm saying? A place of victory, immediately an attack comes against him, and obviously it's Satan that is doing an attack in Peter's life. Now we look at that and we say, man, that's tough. But nonetheless, I think many of us say, you know, that's my reality. You know, I'm pretty bad, I'm doing wonderful in the Lord. Just sat, I was, you know doing something at work, and I was telling somebody about the Lord and, and what he was doing or whatever, and then, you know, I get back to the workplace, and all of a sudden, my flesh comes right back out again. How did I go from victory to defeat that quickly? You know, we have a great day on a Sunday, and Monday morning wakes up, and, and you wake up cranky, and what's the joke? Sometimes you let her sleep in, but this day, you woke her up uh, along with you. You know, but you wake up, and you got a bad attitude all of a sudden. Okay, I'll slow it down. I'll, I'll explain the joke later on to you. you know, but, and some days you just wake up and you got this bad attitude and you're just in the flesh all day. And whereas the day before you were in this place of great victory. You know, the attacks, they will come. And I would suggest to you they come especially when God is at work in your life. So don't be surprised, but be aware. Now we don't just say, well, whatever, that's good. I can have ups and downs. God doesn't want us to have ups and downs. 
to which have a continual moving up, right? But I think part of preventing us from the down is the awareness that the attacks are going to come, so that we're not we're not knocked off our game and we continue to uh, climb the ascent, so to speak. Well, back into our particular passage here, we we read that the Philistines are going to come. David says, uh, "Should I go out into battle?" And I love that response. David had had some victories already, didn't he? David knew how to fight. He'd been doing this for 20 years or so. And yet, David doesn't just come in and say, oh, those annoying Philistines, here they come again. I better go out and deal with them again. He doesn't say that. He doesn't just rush off into battle and say, well, God is establishing me. God is with me. Surely our endeavors won't fail. But again, look at verse 10. It says, and David inquired of God. David inquired of the Lord. David prayed. Why wouldn't God want David to have victory over the Philistines? Of course he wants that, because they're coming against Israel, the people God wants to bless. And yet, even though the answer might seem obvious, David decides to go to the Lord. We saw in our last study that David forgot to do that as it pertained to the ark being brought to Jerusalem. And we saw the consequences of that. Here, however, David wasn't going to forget to inquire of the Lord. And God comes and he speaks. David sought God. He looked there for guidance. And God blessed him. And I, and I believe with all my heart that God does the same thing in our lives as individuals, as families, and as a church. We need to be a people that inquire of the Lord. This is what David wrote in Psalm 25. And it's just portions of the chapter that I want to read to you. In verse 1, David said, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I place my trust. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation, and for you I wait all the day long. In verse 8 he said, Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right, and he teaches the humble his way. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. This truth here, this is from God's word. Obviously, I just read it. Um, God has promised to guide the meek and the humble. Again, look at verse 9. He leads the humble in what is right, and he teaches the humble his way. And one of the simplest ways, and yet one of the hardest ways, for us to humble ourselves daily is to go before the Lord in prayer and to inquire of him for his guidance in our lives. He leads the humble in what is right. I'd encourage you to become a people that inquire of the Lord in all circumstances. Our responsibility is to make sure we come, and that we come in meekness. David does that, and God tells him, yes, go up, and I'll give them in your hand. Look at verse 11. That's exactly what happens. It says, and David went down the Baal Perizim, and David struck down the Philistines there. And David said, God has broken through my enemies by my hand like a bursting flood. And therefore, the name of that place is called Baal Perizim. I love the picture that David gives for us of how God gave them victory. David compares it to a bursting flood. King James, I think, says a breakthrough of water is what he compares it to. And when I hear that, I think of a fellow that we met on one of our mission trips down to uh, the area of New Orleans. It was a fellow that we all called Mr. Pete. Mr. Pete was about 80 years old. You remember Mr. Pete? Reverend Dan, you're chuckling. Uh, Mr. Pete pulled a gun on us. He didn't realize he found this historic gun that worked, 
uh, up in his attic, and he was so excited to show it to everybody. Anyway, Mr. Pete was some 80 years old or so, and he decided, I'm not leaving. Every year they tell me, you know, big storm coming, everybody get out. And Mr. Pete said, I'm not leaving, I'm staying. You know, 40, 50 years I've been sitting around this place for false alarms, only to spend all kinds of money staying at some hotel outside of the city. I'm not doing it, I'm staying. And Mr. Pete tells the story of how he was sitting at his kitchen table some eight or ten miles away from New Orleans and from Lake Pontchartrain, which is about three times the size of the city of New Orleans. It kind of wraps around the city, this big lake where the Mississippi ties into and uh, the Gulf and so on. Uh, and Mr. Pete says, I'm not leaving. So he's sitting at his kitchen table there, and he says, I quickly realized the big mistake that I made. And the first thing that Mr. Pete heard was this loud crash of sorts. And then he just heard this growing rumbling that got louder and louder and louder. Now the loud crash that Mr. Pete heard was the levees breaking 10 miles away. The loud rumbling that he heard was the four feet of rushing water that was coming his way, picking up trees and telephone poles and houses. Literally, we saw the houses and the cars and it was all just making his way uh, toward his particular house. And he said by the time he was able to get up, and he was a healthy fellow for 80, by the time he was able to get up out of his chair and up onto his table, because the plan uh, in New Orleans, everybody keeps an axe up, up in their attic, is to get up into your attic, and then you can break a hole in the roof and climb up on your roof and sit it out. And by the time he got up out of his chair onto his table uh, to begin making his way up into his attic, uh, his kitchen door had been knocked down by the four feet of rushing water that made it in. These guys are 10 miles away. They would eventually get something like 20 feet of water uh, in their community. And I think of that when I read that word, the breaking through of water or the bursting flood. Nothing could stand its ground against the flooding waters that came when that, those levees broke. Cars were picked up. Houses. We, we saw a sign... Uh, one of the houses that said, house down the street across the gully. You know, when they were searching out all the houses to find, and there was a house picked up and taken blocks away. Nothing could stand the tide when this flood was coming in. And that's what happened to the Philistines. God had given David victory, and his, just, his men just flooded forth. Remember that map that we had of all of those enemies that were coming against them from 40 miles away? His men were able to just flood forth, and God gave the children of Israel victory. And as you look at uh, verse 12, it says that the people, the Philistines, they run for their lives. And they run for their lives, and it says in verse 12, they left their gods there, and David gave command, and the gods were burned. They no doubt brought their gods into battle with them uh, to ensure them a victory. The children of Israel learned that that plan doesn't work when they had their good luck charm and the Ark of the Covenant. That sort of thing doesn't work for them. Uh, and David follows the command of the scripture, and he has these false gods, these idols, uh, destroyed. The Philistines run. But notice, in verse 13, they run only to regroup. Look at 13, it says, And the Philistines yet again made a raid in the valley. Another important lesson as we're speaking about this idea of the battle, uh, as we seek to walk with the Lord, is that the enemy does not give up easily. He didn't give up easily as the Philistines came against the nation of Israel, and the enemy will not give up easily in your life as well. It's been said of followers of Christ that you're either in a battle, you've just come out of a battle, or you're about to enter into a battle. 
That's the life of the follower of Christ. I think if we presented that in our gospel invitations, and we just shared it very honestly with people, I think a lot of people would say, I'm not interested in that. And honestly, if you're not interested in that, then you're not fit to be my disciple, Jesus would say. Jesus said, if any man comes after me, he must take up his cross and follow after me. The purpose of the cross is to die, as I shared with you previously. If you want to walk with Christ in the newness of life that was earned for you at the cross and the victory that he has given you, then you need to know today, before leaving again, is that that will, that will entail that your life will be a life of constant struggle. Struggle against the world, struggle against the devil, and struggle against your very own flesh. But I've come to discover, something I hate to struggle, and it's annoying, but what I've come to discover is this great joy when I come on the other side, out on the other side of that, and the Lord has given us victory. But the battles will come. So let me ask you, here you are, you're David, you just had victory, you rushed forth like a mighty flood, like the waters of Lake Pontchartrain train breaking the levees there in New Orleans, and uh, you're taking everything in your path, all the Philistines in your path, and you had this great victory. You settled down, you took a nap, whatever it may be, for the night or days. You, you had your feast out there in the field. You burned all their gods, and now they regroup and they come back at you again. What would you do? What would you do in that instance there? Well, I think most followers of Christ, and many times in my life as a follower of Christ, what I would do is I would go to the formula. How does a person have victory in a particular area of life? Well, let's go back to the manual here. All right, back two years ago, to get victory in this area, this is what you did. So you go to the formula so that you can have victory again. And that would be a mistake, I would suggest to you. The secret was not in the formula. That's not why David won know, a day earlier or days earlier. It wasn't how we used his sword or something like that. It wasn't the time of day that they attacked. It wasn't the, the way that they attacked. It was that the Lord had guided them. They inquired of the Lord and the Lord, and they looked in for direction, and the Lord gave them that. Jehovah was their commander-in-chief. He led them into victory. And wisely, though the circumstances seemed to be exactly the same as the ones that had happened just a day or two earlier, David does the wise thing, and he inquires of the Lord again. Notice what it says. In verse 13, 14. And when David again inquired of God, God said to him, You shall not go up after them. Go around and come against them, opposite the balsam trees. Some of your versions say the mulberry trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then go out to battle. For God has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as God commanded him. And they struck down the Philistine army from Gibeon to Gezer. And the fame of David went out into all the lands. And the Lord brought the fear of him upon all of the nations. Same enemy, same situation, same battlefield, same strategy will do. Right? Wrong! No, wrong! I set you up. I'm sorry. Uh, same strategy won't do. It might, if God so directs. But that's the key. Is God directed? Are we in tune with God? Are we dependent on him? David was. If David had followed the strategy of yesterday for the battle of today, then he would have missed the resources of God. And no doubt he would have experienced a great defeat. It's this idea of continual inquiry of the Lord that will be the secret to our success in our walk with Christ as well. 
It is God's unequivocal desire. And you can't go, like, I'm not sure if God thinks that. It is God's desire that we be a people that wait for his leading and we resist moving forward until we're confident of the stirring of the Spirit of God. I like how the King James Version said it. It said it this way. When thou hearest the sound of a going in the tops of the mulberry trees, that then thou shalt bestir thyself. The sounds of a going. I don't know what the sounds of a going sounds like, but these people would have known. And when they felt or they sensed that stirring, then they were to go. We've waited. We've heard the stirring. And now all that is left to do is for us to obey. And friends, that's the secret to a victorious Christian life and to recurring victory in our lives. I wanted to close with a, a fascinating experience to me uh, that happened to me. Fascinating to me. You may not be glad. Savage. You know, whatever. But for me, it, it meant a lot to me. And, and I was so excited. I ran upstairs and I told my wife and Jeff and Linda Simpson were over for lunch and I, I shared with them. Neat story. Nobody seemed as impacted as I did. But that's okay. God told me. Uh, but here I am, I'm studying this passage, I'm studying this idea of inquiring of the Lord um, before going out into battle, and, and that God will give us the victory, and same enemy, same location, yet not necessarily the same, same strategy, so we seek him again. And I was getting all this down, I was learning, I was ready to tell you, you know, all these sorts of things. And just before lunch, I get an email. And the email is from a lady by the name of Debbie Renault. Debbie Renault is the scheduling secretary for Bob Lenz. Anybody here remember Bob Lenz? Okay, a few of you. Um, for those of you that haven't been around very long, in, back in 2006, we brought Bob Lenz in. He's a motivational speaker. He's a follower of Christ. He loves the Lord. And he goes into schools all around the nation. He speaks at things like Creation Fest and all sorts of things. He goes into schools all around the nation and will speak to the student body some sort of a motivational message of sorts. Um, whatever it may be. And he's very, very effective. Students uh, all over the, the nation. Doesn't matter where he, he's from, I think Michigan or whatever, it doesn't matter where he goes, students all around the nation are, are impacted by the message that he shares. And then he'll invite the students, he says, you know what, there, there's a lot more to my message. I've shared uh, some with you, but there's a lot more to this that I'd love to share with you this evening. And he introduces this idea that he's going to share with them about his relationship with God, and he'd like them to come back. But we did two sessions uh, over at Ewing High School, uh, about a thousand students, and they had to come. Door to day, it's you know 500, 500, and they got it in. And then he extended the invitation. I'd like you all to come back tonight. 600 students out of the thousand came back that particular evening. And that particular evening, about 300 of those students responded that they would like to begin a relationship with Christ and begin to investigate what Christ would have for their lives. It was. Remarkable, it was amazing. Here I am, in the, I was working at the school at the time, a place that I had worked for 15 years, and I'm seeing an altar call being given in the school auditorium, and students responding to that presentation of the gospel. It was, it was amazing. What a great victory the Lord had given us. So now I get this email, and the email says that Bob Lenz is coming to Ewing Township, and he's going to be speaking at the College of New Jersey in January for the Association of Student Councils. Um, that gathered there. A couple thousand students will gather there during a day in January. And he's going to be speaking there as the keynote speaker. And since he had come into our school in the past and into our community in the past, uh, this woman, Debbie, was wondering if we would like to have him come and do another outreach into our community. Now, I'm, I'm the, I don't know what the proper term is, uh, anal, is that the term? Uh, I have issues, I have problems, you know, I understand it. 
And, and one of my great joys in life is to delete emails. That there's a task there, bam, I've done that task, I don't have to think about it again, I can move on in life. And so, in my anality, um, what I want to do is say, absolutely sign us up. Send, delete, move on. And, and the reason why I would be so quick to that is because this is a no-brainer. What a great victory we had in our past battle. When we brought Bob Lenz and he led us into victory, 300 students responded. 600 were moved enough to come back into here. And certainly, God's word never returns back void. And so God is doing the work even in the hearts of those particular people. This is a no-brainer. Sign us up. Put us down. But uh, I had to go up to lunch or whatever. And so I came down, and I was going to send this particular email. Uh, and I, no, I'm sorry. I remember my dog started barking. My dog, used by the Lord, who would have thought? Uh, and my dog starts barking, so I have to get up out of my chair, and I have to go open the door so he can go out. And by the time I came back to my chair, I was formulating the response email. And it was going to be something like, absolutely, we can't wait, this is going to be great, sign us up. And just as I'm about to sit down in my chair and put my hands on the keypad, I sense this, shouldn't you inquire of the Lord? before going off into battle a second time. And I was like, wow, Lord, that's totally you. Lord, you're speaking to us. And so, friends, would you pray with me? Uh, I'd love to have Bob Lenz come back and share and go into public schools uh, again. But I want to make sure that's what the Lord would have us to do. And so would you pray with us uh, about that particular endeavor? And, and even more importantly, would you determine with me just for your own personal walk with Christ and my own personal walk with Christ, to become a person that is inquiring of the Lord, not just daily, but moment by moment, as to where he might be leading. And when he does lead, would you determine the purpose that you will obey? Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you. Father, I thank you for the practical lesson that I was able to experience. And, and Lord, uh, just I would have probably rushed forward if I wasn't studying this passage at that moment. And so, Lord, I, I'm thankful that you, uh, you just intervened and you taught me a lesson. And, Lord, I pray for each of us in this room. Father, that uh, we would be utterly dependent on you. Father, we would recognize that we do live in a battle. There is uh, the world, the flesh, the devil is raging against the Spirit's work in our lives. And so, Father, we want to be keenly aware of that and at the same time utterly dependent on you. Father, I pray when, when the battles come and we get discouraged and we want to just give up and give in, Lord, that you would encourage us through your word and that your spirit would come and minister much like Jesus was ministered to as he was facing the temptations there in the early pages of the gospel would come alongside of us and encourage us and refresh our spirit. But we do want to be a people of victory. But we know we make a big mistake if we rush out into battle without you. So become for uh, the forefront of our thinking.